Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. What actually happened on that, this is interesting, another part that I didn't write about, but during this attempted coup in the Republican caucus back in 95, they were going to try to, you know, get her out as speaker. I think that in retrospect, you have to look at it in place and time. At the moment, on that day, when that all came down, you know, there's not a lot of plotting about, well, let me think about two years from now, right? Yeah. It's just kind of like, we're just moving ahead. And, and I think that everybody understood that our nominee was Kate Brown. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I was super excited today because I got to have a conversation with Rick Metzger. Those who have been following Oregon politics for a while will know Rick. He's a former state senator. He served for about a decade in the Oregon State Legislature. After he left the legislature, he was actually appointed by President Barack Obama to serve on the board of the National Credit Union Administration. He was eventually chair, and now he's back in Oregon, and he's going to be doing some legislative advocacy during the session. But the reason why we wanted to talk to Rick is he just wrote this essay, this two-part essay, that basically tells, for the first time that I'm aware of publicly, the story of basically how Peter Courtney became Senate president in his first session and the conflict. I don't know if conflict might be a bit too strong of a word. The competition between Peter Courtney and Kate Brown who also wanted to be Senate president and was the caucus leader at the time. There was this split chamber. There were these secret ballots. Rick has actually told the story. He interviewed 15 of his former colleagues who were in the Senate at this time, and he wrote this essay. He names names. He tells the story of who said what, how this happened, chronology. There's tears involved. There's broken promises allegedly involved. It's a highly dramatic story, but the reason why it's important is because, I mean, most folks know Peter Courtney is the longest serving Senate president in Oregon history. Kate Brown just finished her time as governor. These are two of the most influential figures in modern Oregon politics and their trajectories, where they ended up today, started in that moment in a secret caucus meeting at Salishan. And so Rick tells that story and we were really excited to chat with him. My co-host Reagan Canope was supposed to be here, but he's actually being a good family member and helping helping with a transportation need for folks in his family. So we missed Reagan this episode, but he'll be back next week. And yeah, with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rick Metzger. The lawyers at Harang Longary Rudnick PC have represented both public and private sector clients in Oregon's political and policymaking arenas for decades. We have worked on some of the most consequential public policy matters in modern Oregon history, combining strategic savvy with technical expertise to help our clients navigate the legal, political, and governmental landscape to achieve their goals. To learn more about how Harang Long can help you achieve your goals, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right, Rick Metzger, thanks so much for joining the podcast. How are you? You bet. Representative-elect, it's uh, great <laughs> to be here. So we're going to get into this essay that you wrote, which, as I was saying, Reagan, I think, is one of the most interesting pieces in Oregon politics that we've read in years about the intersection of Peter Courtney and Kate Brown's lives and careers and how they sort of ended up where they ended up. But you're not a sort of like neutral party from the outside in this story. You actually were a member of the state Senate for over a decade. So what's that story? How did you end up? I think 1999 was when you got elected. How did you end up in the state? Yeah, Senate? I was elected in 98. So 98 or 99 was the first session. 
I got into the Senate by coercion. <laughs> um, actually, it's a person who's still lobbying, uh, Pam Levitt. I know Pam, uh, yeah. And I was the Oregon Credit Union League, and he had talked to me about running for the Senate. I was on the board of uh, what was then Portland Teachers Credit Union. It's now called On Point Community Credit Union. I'm a member. And uh, I, I was a citizen uh, testifier on a bill the previous session that failed. And he said, you should run for the Senate because the guy who was chairing the committee was in the district that I happened to live. And, and it was like, you know, we could really use your help here. And by the way, it, it's a part-time gig. <laughs> it's not hard to run. It doesn't take much. And uh, so why don't you do it? So I bit. And then before I could get off the hook, you know, she had reeled me in. So then I realized, oh, this is nothing part-time about this. But that's actually how I first got into, uh, you know, politics in the first time. So I was so kind of you, a latecomer. Did you beat an incumbent? Not directly. Ken Baker is a Republican from Happy Valley, was the chair of the business committee. And then he got primaried by a, someone more to the right of him, uh, a guy named Grisham, who was the Clackamas County Commissioner. And Grisham beat him in the primary. Uh, and then I beat Grisham in the general election. Got it. So, yeah, it's just kind of how those things go sometimes. But I always blame Pam that it was, it was her fault. So. Well, Pam is a lovely person who lives in Tigard, my new district. So my former boss, Margaret Doherty, used to joke, I don't have to be nice to lobbyists unless they're my constituents. So Pam is Pam's <laughs> constituent. See, make sure you know the map, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after you served in the Senate and your background with Portland Teachers Credit Union and On Point sort of alludes to how this may have happened, but you got this prestigious federal role that you were like directly appointed by President Barack Obama to serve on the National Credit Union, the board of the National Credit Union Administration. How did that happen? How did you get picked out of Oregon to you be? Know, that was interesting. That's one of, again, it's kind of serendipity. I had left the Senate, had a PR company at the time. And of course, I followed credit union stuff a lot. And you know, I was the chair of the business committee in the Senate. So we did all the banking and credit union legislation and all that kind of stuff. And there was an appointment to the NCUA, which is the federal regulator for credit unions. So you have the FDIC, which is the federal regulator for the banks, and then the NCUA is for the credit unions. And they had an appointee to fill a vacant seat, I think, in 2012. And that nominee did not get confirmed by the Senate. Oh. And so they had to, they had to reopen that again. And it was a couple of people that were really integral to that happening. Primarily, it was Jeff Merkley who right. I, of course, had served with in the legislature. He was in the Senate. He was on the banking committee, you know, and of course that nominee had failed. And, you know, early on, you know, he suggested well, that might be something you'd be interested in because you've got the background for that, you know, with the legislative background, the credit union background, et cetera. And, you know, he would be helpful if I was interested in doing that. So I said, wow, well, you know, I'll apply for that. That's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I applied for that and didn't hear anything. For six months and didn't expect ever to hear anything. And then it was around October of 2012. Yeah. I think it was July that I filled out the paperwork, right? Yeah. So then it was about October of 2012. And I was talking to a former staffer of mine, James Oleski. James is now a law professor at Lewis and Clark College, but he left our Senate Democratic office and went to work as a general counsel, assistant general counsel for the president when Obama was first elected. And he served for a couple of years and met the love of his life and moved back to Oregon and, and took a job at Lewis and Clark. So I was talking to James and he said, I told him I did this. He says, oh, well, you know, my desk, 
was right next door to the head of the office of personnel. <laughs> I know her really well. I said, well, I put this application in. If you wouldn't mind, would you mind just giving her a call and say I'm not a criminal? And maybe, <laughs> maybe out of this stack of uh, applicants, she might take a look at it. And I think that was critical because he actually talked to her. And about three weeks later, I, it was early December at that point, and I got a call from the White House and they said, can you be here in two days for an interview? Um, oh, yeah. So cancel some uh, you know, plans. That's kind of what happened. <laughs> I and I came in and went to the West Wing and had an interview. And a few days later, after they had made the rounds with the president, said you're going to be our nominee, and and it all started that way. So, did you ever interact with like White House Chief of Staff or the president, or who who were the people? Like how inside? Not really. Were... Not really. I mean, I met the president a couple times, but you know, he was he had you know. Uh, Kind of a higher level of responsibility than <laughs> some uh, other things going on than me. So there was a, a White House liaison that I worked with, you know, one of the deputies, and also through the whole financial regulatory network. So we had Federal Reserve, the FDIC, the NCUA, the SEC, and the Comptroller of the Currency, and we were on two other bodies: FSOC, Financial Stability Oversight Council, and the Federal Financial Institutions Executive Council (FFIEC). So. All of us, the heads of the department, also served in that capacity. And so we all, you know, worked together and with the White House liaison on, you know, different policies with the administration. And that was my major contact with the White House. You know, I mean, I've got some napkins and, you know, some m and <laughs> you, know, you know, with the White House printed on them. You know, I mean, you know, that's, so, so that's not I, bad. I have two other questions on this before we jump into the story. One is vetting. Did they do the, like, they call all your friends and family and everyone you grew up with? And, like, is that really how it worked? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget the time. I live on Court Street right here in Salem, right up from the Capitol, historic neighborhood. And a nice little lady next door, I remember, he said, oh, this is going to freak her out because I see this black car in front of her house with the guy, you know, guy that just, he looks like Fed, right? (laughs) And I knew what was happening, you know, Uh, you know, going to interview her. I said, oh, this is going to freak her out. You know, what's the Fed? Because, you know, they can't tell anything. They want to know about you. They say, well, what's this about? I, I'm sorry, ma'am. I can't. So they think, I, you know, everybody thinks you're, you know, you're, <laughs> He's under you're investigated for yeah. massive federal fraud or something. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, I remember doing my exit interview with the FBI. This took about two and a half months. They had like seven different FBI agents on this. I think they talked to 150 some odd Holy people. Holy cow. Um, including my high school, I mean, my freshman college roommate, who I hadn't talked to in 40 years. They talked to him. (laughs) Um, So um, I will tell you, it's a very, uh, as it's a Senate nominee, you have to be approved by the Senate. So they're very thorough about that. And, you know, they know stuff about me that I didn't even remember. so. (laughs) So then my final question on this is, I noticed you, let's see, you you served through January 22nd, 2017. That is not a random date. That is immediately after President Trump. I served as chairman until then. Te- yeah. Through, through, so did you stay yeah. on the board after? Yeah, yeah. So I was still on the board, but the president gets to pick the chairman. So ah, needless to say, within 36 hours of Trump being elected, the Republican on the board was named to replace me as chairman. And, uh, you know, I got back to just being a regular member of the board. But you, so, so you, you had a term in office that meant, so President Trump could not remove you from the board, but right. he could replace you as chair. Yes, exactly. So I, I served till 2019. So I served two years into the Trump administration. I was one of the last Obama holdovers and every federal position is different, but in the federal financial 
network of agencies, the law specifies that those are terms. If you remember, there was a big brouhaha over the CFPB and some other things yep, yep. that you can't be removed except for cause. So you can, the president probably would have loved a replacement, but, yeah. um, <laughs> but he couldn't, but he couldn't do that. And, you know, I stayed out of his life and he stayed out of mine. And that was fine. And I assume this was a, this was a full-time paid position. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where, and you're living in DC during this yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. I come uh, home to Oregon twice a month. Wow. You know, for four day weekends. And I share the airplane to almost every other weekend with Suzanne Bonamici and Jeff Merkley and, <laughs> nuts. you know, uh, Kurt Schrader. Uh, we became, you know, uh, seat buddies. Yeah. Okay. So now let's rewind a couple decades in your previous life as a state senator. Um, you wrote this essay for PacWest, who you work with now, um, their mailing list. And it's basically the story of how Kate Brown ended up, not how she ended up as governor, but how she narrowly missed something she wanted, which we'll talk about. Right. Peter Courtney ends up as Senate president, and that sort of sets their trajectories off. Following. Right. So let's start in 1997. Kate Brown gets elected to the Senate in 1997, but it is a very different state Senate than what it looks like today. I believe you you write that it was a 2010 Republican 20, Senate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No walkout necessary. They, no. They, you know, we got 20 here already. We don't need you for a quorum. They have quorum without the R's. And so Kate Brown basically is a central figure in shifting the composition of the Senate and electing more Democrats, how does she do that? How does she go about shifting the Senate? Well, first of all, you know, she's very driven politically. And I mean, she, she went in, you know, both feet. I mean, you know, who wants to serve in, you know, in a minority 20 to 10, right? And and so uh, the the head of the Senate Democratic Caucus and just a wonderful person was Senator Cliff Trow out of Corvallis. He was history professor at Oregon State University. And Cliff, you know, I, so I served with him for two terms, actually. So Cliff, you know, was a great policymaker, you know, I, you know, I, and he was a good thinker, but he was not a politician, right? Yeah. I mean, he was not somebody that, you know, had that fire of the belly or, or the wherewithal, you know, in his own, you know, sphere of what is important to go out there and actually hit campaign trails and help candidates and raise money. And, and so I think Kate saw that and said, well, you know, I need to have that position uh, and to do that. And, and Cliff isn't going to do that. And so I'm just going to take it upon myself to to start doing that. And so she was very active in the election that in the race that I was running and others and and spending time walking doors, spending time helping raise money. And and so she was rewarded with that. I think Cliff was kind of ready to step down anyway. But it was clear that we needed new energy and that Kate had displayed that. And so she became caucus leader in November after that election. And uh, and that's kind of how that got started. So she becomes caucus leader and she's chipping away every cycle. She's winning a few more seats. I think in 2002, she finally wins one additional seat. And well, then... she won, in 2000, we won another one. I think that was Ryan Deckert beat Eileen okay. Cuto. Yeah. And then in 2002, uh, we won another one, which brings us to the tie. Yeah. So the, so. This is where it gets sort of nuts is like you've got a tide chamber. You've got this is even hard for me to imagine today. You've got it. This happened in 2010 and it looked completely different than what happened in 2002. Um, in 2010, they basically split everything and they're, you know, they it was pretty clear. This is know, in the house now. You're yeah, in the house, the house, in the house. There's Arnie Roblin and Bruce Hanna. You've got co speakers, right. you've got co chairs of committees. Like in 2002, there was really no precedent, I'm guessing. You had a split chamber, right. nobody knew what to do. And 
basically it, it sounds like for several months they could not decide on who was going to be Senate right. president. They literally couldn't right. do anything. Two months, yeah. So what is happening in those two months? Well, they were, you know, the negotiators were meeting all the time. We had three negotiators. The Republicans had six. <laughs> you know, uh, and they would meet, you know, every week, you know, they were accomplishing various things in terms of, you know, how the committee structure would work, uh, how the membership would work. And it evolved into what we called a memorandum of understanding of how we would share this balance. And so that kind of stuff got done. But when I got actually, who actually, who was going to lead, you know, it, it was, it was very interesting. As I wrote about, there was initial talks about sharing the presidency, Right. Right. And the biggest issue for the Republicans was that they just absolutely would not have Kate Brown. And I understand that because they saw her as someone that's taken away, you know, the their power and everything that they've had enjoyed for quite a few years. Was she perceived as like, I mean, she's from Southeast Portland. She's a member of the LGBT community. So I'm guessing was the perception like, oh, she's a far left sort of person or was it mostly about her role in the campaigns? I think it's mostly about her role in the campaign as opposed to her philosophy, right? I okay, mean, okay. Uh, they just don't want to reward her any further from, from anything else. And they were adamant about that. And we were insistent that Kay Brown, if we're going to share the presidency, she, she's she our nominee, win. right? Yeah. And so that led to a stalemate on, on that. The other part about it is, and I just wrote briefly about this, was that what was interesting, you mentioned the House in 2010, obviously they coalesced around Bruce Hanna and were able to find something. Republicans did not have a nominee. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it was really quite funny that is that it seemed like there was a, of those six people in the negotiating table, every one of them wanted it. To be but none of them could get more than two votes themselves. <laughs> and so they, you know, we had a nominee, but they couldn't even get a nominee. And so, uh, and you saw what I wrote about, you know, when it finally got down to maybe Bev Clarno. Well, there was two things. One I didn't actually write about was uh, one of the ones early on was Len Hannon. Now, Len Hannon was the longest serving member of the Senate. Also, yeah. he was a senior member of the Republicans, but he was more of a, he was no more of a more kind of a liberal Republican. He actually used to be a Democrat. He was elected originally as a Democrat uh, yeah. in Southern Oregon. And one of the things that was... Uh, early on in those negotiations was, there was a lot of mistrust of Len. They were, we're going to have actually two Democrats as, yeah. you know, he, he's going to give away the farm. So they really didn't want Len to be their guy. And then nobody else, they could get more than a couple of votes to do that. And so that's where, um, you know, finally at some point, it became clear that someone is going to have to be president because the, the sharing thing wasn't going it to work. Couldn't work. So then it became who is going to be one that's acceptable enough on both sides to have that. And it's Bev Clarno who suggests initially Peter Courtney, right? Yeah, because Bev was, you know, when they're getting out of nitty gritty, we're getting ready to start session and still don't have a president. And Bev had just been elected as the caucus leader. She's a former Speaker of the House. So she, and she came in the Senate and uh, she was well liked in her caucus. So they thought, well, maybe we'll try with Bev. But that, that's where the John Minnis issue came out. Um, what happened with Minnis, there was, I think it was five Republicans back in 95. They did an all-out revolt in the Republican caucus. And so what Bev did, she stripped all of them of their committees. Was this like the kind of, what I forget what the 94, the red wave, the sort of like Newt yeah, Gingrich yeah, faction yeah, yeah, gets, yeah, okay. Yeah, so th these five people, you might, you know, today they, they have the Freedom Caucus or whatever, but anyway, right. they had a group of five people that they said, this is how we're going to run things. And Bev and just strips them. Bev said, no, 
So <laughs> none of you have any committee responsibilities anymore. Well, four of them kind of came crawling back and apologized, but not Menace. Menace right. said no. And so when he, her name was brought up, and keep in mind, I served with John Menace, and he was the judiciary chair when I was on the judiciary committee. John, you know, uh, when he said, you know, you could trust what he was going to say, whether you liked it or not. And John just said, hey, if it's going to be Clarno, I'm voting for Kate Brown. And it was like, okay, well, there goes that one. <laughs> we have only any more choices left, right? Because no, none of the rest of us like any of the rest of us enough to vote for us. So. And Peter and was seen, Peter was perceived as that you know he had some experience in the building. He was sort of a moderate figure, like yeah, but yeah. And so Beth had worked with Peter because because he was the Democratic leader in the House at the time she was Speaker. So they had to work together a lot. And uh, what actually happened on that? This is interesting. Another part that I didn't write about, but during this attempted coup in the Republican caucus back in 95, mm -hmm. they were going to try to, you know, get her out as, as speaker. Okay. Now I don't have this on firsthand knowledge. I heard this from some of the interviews I did because I was not a part of that, but I had at least two people tell me this is that something along the line was, uh, Peter had a conversation with Beth Larno and said, if these it. guys try that, we're going to vote for you. Oh, Peter, Peter said he could deliver Democratic votes to keep Bev Clarno keep her in, in the chair if, if they if they uh, were to pull that stunt. So that, earned, that could have earned him some big time points with Bev. And I think that said. earned the points with Bev. And so she remembered that when it came time to uh, somebody that I could trust that, that would run this and not run roughshod over us. And and so. so yeah, so so this idea happens. The people in the room, whoever these sort of delegates from the two caucuses are, kind of basically say, "Yeah, this is what we're going to do." And then I think you describe it's Senator Ginny Burdick runs into Kate Brown in the hallway after this meeting. What exactly happens there? Well, they met each other in the on the Senate wing. You know, you have the staircase and you have the elevator. Well, she, she was take, going down the staircase and she ran into Kate. And this was right after. Bev had delivered the news that the caucus would vote for Peter Courtney. And so they ran into each other in the, the hallway. And it was a very emotional time. Obviously, Kate had just got that news. And and Ginny and Kate were, you know, pretty close. And she had been fighting really hard for Kate for two months, you know, for being Senate president. And so it was just an emotional moment. I thought it was a very touching moment. They just and really didn't talk, Jenny said. They just kind of started crying and, you know, because, I mean, she had worked so hard for that, and, she, and Jenny knew that. But she was a good statesperson and stepping aside, knowing that Republicans are going to give us, the Democrats, well, presidency of well, the Senate in a tight Senate. And, you know, even though it's not me, I've got to be able to, you know, react. And I was uh, going to say, Kate Brown comes across in your essay as like incredibly statesmanlike and graceful. And, you know, she she's basically the protagonist in the Democrats retaking the Senate and for political reasons, isn't able to have it at the moment. Right. So and it's actually Kate Brown who tells Peter, right? Kate says, Peter, call your family. You're about to get sworn in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing thing. If you can imagine that, it'd be like you. I mean, you go in there and someone walks in and say, you're going to be the Speaker of the House and <laughs> I can get no staff. I've got no and, – and what do you mean? Someone's going to swear me in four hours. I have to give a speech? How am I going to write a speech? So it was just chaos. And, you know, I could, I could just imagine how 
Peter's face in that moment is, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, all heck was breaking loose and, uh, you know, totally not prepared for that. And so, so that actually, that's how it kind of went down. So I want to pull, I'm going to read a direct excerpt from your essay. This, the first paragraph is a, this is what Peter Courtney said in his speech on the floor of the Senate. And then I'm going to read a couple sentences you write and kind of ask you to weigh in and help us understand what this means. So Peter Courtney sort of out of nowhere becomes Senate president. He gets sworn in and he gives the speech. And this is what he says in the speech. I also want to acknowledge Senator Kate Brown. We've been through a lot. And I know that in this audience today, each of you bring to what we've just done, varying degrees of support and opposition. Senator Brown has acted in a way that I envy. She has shown a degree of true public service in taking herself out of a situation that she has spent so long pursuing. I hope she understands that I stand before her today as an individual who realizes that while I am the president now, I am simply a shared president. So that's Peter Courtney's quote. And then here's what you add in the essay. That last sentence would be the subject of different interpretations in the months and years ahead. Was Courtney saying that if Democrats had a clear majority, he believed Brown should be president? Or is he trying to comfort a respected colleague who needed a word of encouragement? What do you think? What what, what do you think is behind that statement? Well, obviously, anything that Kate or Peter said between each other with nobody else is something that none of us will ever really know. Right, right. Um, I think that in retrospect, you have to look at it in place and time at the moment on that day when that all came down. You know, there's not a lot of plotting about, let me think about two years from now. Right. It's just kind of like we're just moving ahead. And and I think that everybody understood that our nominee was Kate Brown and that. But the circumstances, the way they played out, this is how it's going to be. So, you know, no one got together, you know, ever had votes or, I mean, keep in mind, two people can't determine who the Senate president is, but caucus determines that. So, but I think if you were to ask anybody at the time, before the session starts, right, after, on that first day or second day, there probably would be assumption, well, I'm sure that if we win total, you know, it'll be cake. I mean, just like the assumption would be. But as you know, how politics is, it's also- That doesn't always, yeah, things change. So it changes. And, you know, and then we have a session in which Peter gets tremendous accolades for how he's running the session. And and as I mentioned, he really earned the trust of the caucus. And those are individual stories, you know, where people have to face some issues. And Peter had their back in private situations or something like that. And and that changes things. So there's two. Yes. So there's two things happening at the same time. One is Peter Courtney is Senate president and things are going pretty well. Like you say, the media is loving it. Political observers are loving it. Most senators are are feeling like he's doing a good job and he's sort of balancing things. And at the same time, Kate Brown is still the caucus leader for the Democrats and is actively after the session, I'm sure. But she's recruiting candidates. She's raising money. She's putting in the work to actually take back the Senate. Peter's doing some of this too. There's this story about how a lobbyist to a lot of people know Jack Dempsey is working at SDLF and they're yeah, both yeah. like working through yeah. Jack to figure out how much of they, how much did Peter exactly. raise? How much did Kate exactly. raise? They're, they're competing against each other. I don't know if it's explicitly or implicitly, but they're both trying to be the sort of like leader of the Senate Democrats to position yeah, themselves. Yeah, for yeah. It was by that time, you know, it was obvious to all of us that this, that Peter was going to be running again. Right. I mean, okay. cause he was diving in full, you know, both feet in, just like Kate, and, uh, you know, trying to make the caucus 
the responsibility to the caucus to show that he's in this for the campaign as well as during for the session for them to build his creds up with uh, Kate. And so there was no doubt that when we got together in November, this was going to be a confrontation. So, okay. So, so 2004 election happens and it's actually an insanely good election for Senate Democrats. They win three additional seats. It's 1812, clear majority in the Senate. And then as some of our listeners know, basically after the elections happen, all four caucuses have basically, we call them retreats, I think, like caucus retreats. Yours is in Salishan at the coast in- They're still uh, doing Salishan. I guess they can't (laughs) figure out any other place exists in Oregon, I guess. Uh, So so all the Senate Democrats go to Salishan. Before we talk about, because what happens at Salishan is to me just fascinating. But before we get to the actual vote, you as a senator going to Salishan, do you think you know what's going to happen? Do you think you know where the votes are? Or are people going in saying, who the hell knows who our caucus leader is going to be? I didn't know. I don't think anybody knew. And in fact, when you got the vote, you could see that. He was, <laughs> that I mean, I knew it was going to be divisive. There was not a sense of like, oh, we're coming to celebrate together. We had this big win. It was like all no one knew who the Senate president was going to be. And people were like nervous about this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember I got calls and you know, all my colleagues got calls from Peter and Kate asking for their support. And, you know, for the obviously some people said, yeah, I'll support you or not support you. But I do know that, you know, a lot of us just said, you know, we love you both. And that's wait until that day. I mean, we, we you really didn't want to be committed because you just didn't know how this was going to go. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, and you wanted to hear what they had to say. And, uh, and it was tough. I mean, I'm sure some of the some of the people were really committed to one or the other. But, you know, I think there's about a third of the caucus that it was a really tough decision, you know, weighing this versus this. So, OK, so that's the mood going in. You should be celebrating in a traditional election cycle. This would be a, a gigantic win for Democrats. But because of the politics, people are nervous. So the way this works procedurally is it's a secret ballot vote. So people basically get a slip of paper, I'm guessing, and they write a name on it. So first round happens. They pass out the paper. The paper comes back in. It's eight votes Brown, eight votes Peter Courtney. Right. Are the other two votes Brown and Courtney, they just don't vote? Or why are you missing yeah, two Well, uh, the assumption is they vote for themselves. So I, okay. that's why I read eight of their colleagues voted for them and eight I voted see. for them. Yeah. Okay, so you're t- it's a it's a tie. It's eight eight. Yeah. They do a second round. They pass out the ballots again. Does anything happen in between? Do people give another round of speeches or anything? No, there was no second round of speeches between the first and second ballot. As I recall, there wasn't much of anything. It was just like, oh wow, let's try again. Right, let's, <laughs> let's try this again. It was after the second one where things got tense, you know. And that's um, when you write that Senator Vicki Walker, who gigantic figure in that period of Oregon politics, not just for this, but she was also a central figure in the Neil Goldschmidt story, as we recently talked to Nigel Jaquis about. I think she also got a federal position of some kind, didn't she, during the Obama years? Yeah, she had, um, I think it was the USDA, University uh, Department of Agriculture grant program. So she was running that out of Portland. So she stands up in this closed door secret caucus meeting and basically says, come on, people, like we got to get this done. I think the quote is, come on, people, how are we going to show we can govern the state if we can't even decide how to govern ourselves? That's so picky. Um, And that's the one I recall the most. There was other comments, you know, that were made about different things. So there was a little discussion there at that point, but there was a real sense that there had to be some movement. Of course, there's always the fear that, okay, Ben is going to move. 
and then Rick moves, and we still have a tie, right? I mean, so, so no one really knew how that was going to go. But when we voted for the third time, right. you're pulling names out, you're reading it, you know, Courtney, you know, Brown. And it became clear that one had changed. Are they reading the votes in front of everyone, or does a group take the votes yeah. to a separate room? And no, come no, in? no. They're pulled right out in front of us and read. <laughs> so you know exactly down. how. Okay. So Peter Courtney wins by one vote because one person changes their vote from Brown to Courtney. Do you have any? Do we have any idea who did that? We don't think we'll ever know. You know, after talking just about everybody, I have a suspicion. Okay. But, I think part of the wonderfulness of this is that we don't really know. There's some secrets that will maintain, yeah. Uh, yeah. continue yeah. to be secrets. Right. Okay, so so the vote changes. Peter Courtney wins. We'll get to the implications in a moment, but what happens in the room? Uh, I think it, it was actually kind of somber. I think even those who voted for Peter were, you know, for the most part, sad for Kate, as it would have been on the other way around, right? So, I mean, it wasn't like people were depressed or anything, but... It wasn't happy go jolly. Let's go out and have a few drinks and celebrate. You know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a somber, you know, moment. And I think people respected the fact that how hard they both had worked. And and we also had, as you know, we had to go move right into selecting the majority leader. So now the question is, does Kate want to stay on as majority leader after being rejected? You know, kind of twice now for Senate presidency. And I don't know anybody else wanted that job. You know, it's a lot of work. You know. So it was good that Kate, you know, agreed to stay on as majority leader. But, you know, clearly she was very disappointed that I, you know, you can't can't blame her for that. But I mean, she worked very hard to try to get there. So there's this interesting tidbit earlier in the essay where you say at one point, Phil Kiesling is secretary of state. He steps down early as secretary of state and no one's quite sure, like, who's going to get appointed to fill that seat. A friend of Kate Brown goes to Kate and say, hey, you should put your name in the hat for secretary of state. And her response is, and I quote, I don't want to be secretary of state. I want to be Senate president. This is allegedly what she told this friend. So she wanted to be Senate president twice. She gets rebuffed because of, you know, weird shifting politics within the caucus. And as you write, she sort of redirects her route, eventually runs for secretary of state. I believe Vicki Walker was in that election too, right? That was was her Vicki Walker. And you were, yeah, and then you, you yeah, there was four of us in it. I finished second in that. I mean, there was a, it was like the whole Senate was running for Secretary of State. <laughs> so yeah, that was a that was a fun year. But yeah, uh, yeah, Vicky was in that. So Peter Courtney basically in that at Salishan has cemented his. I mean, obviously a lot of shifts and changes happened, but that's the beginning of his record-setting tenure, the longest Senate yeah. president in the history of Oregon. Peter Courtney, Kate Brown wins the primary for Secretary of State wins the general election, gets reelected. And then, of course, we all know the story of Kitsaba's resignation and how she gets elevated right. to be governor. Fascinating story. I'm curious why you decided to tell this story. There's, you know, famously caucus meetings are private. People don't often know what's going on in those. There's sometimes whisper campaigns and people say certain things. It's clear that not only you, but Sounds like you talked about just everyone else in your caucus and everybody's kind of ready. Well, I talked to the Republicans too. (laughs) (laughs) So why did you decide to tell this story now? And why do you think so many of your colleagues were comfortable with what was at the time a deeply secret and sacred conversation becoming part of the public record? Well, first of all, most of them, you know, aren't being quoted. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I didn't quote anybody who I didn't ask. It was okay if I quoted you on something like Jenny because it was very personal. (laughs) Yeah. Because history is important. I mean, there is a there is a time for secrecy. I mean, this hasn't been talked about for twenty years. I mean, there, uh, 
she's the governor. You know, Peter's president of the Senate. They're active in things. And but just like, uh, you know, with White House records or anything else, there is a point in which the things need to be classified, be classified for history. And with Peter and Kate, you know, both leaving now in the next uh, two weeks, you know, leaving that stage after those careers, I thought it was really important just for Oregon history, for people to understand how these things happened and to reflect on just how things happen in politics in general. You know, I talked about how, you know, people in political careers, it's like an escalator on the way up. And as you we've seen here locally, we've seen it nationally, we will continue to see it. It can be and generally is an elevator on the way down. Uh, it's, it's just one day it's gone. And so people devote a lot of their lives to, you know, to this and work very hard at it. And just the emotion of that. And I think it's really important to, to, uh, to do that. And then it's also important to recognize that, you know, the role that, you know, fate plays in these things. You can't, and, and it's not just politics, you know, in your own personal life, you yeah. know, things happen that you didn't ever anticipate and things happen, you know, in your other job, you know, life or whatever that, you know, uh, it's the old, you know, adage. I think it's true. You know, when doors close, windows can open, and and you have to be, you know, able and nimble to react to that. And I think part of the story was Kate was nimble. She didn't sit there and just pouted about it for the rest of her career. You know, she pulled things together and said, "All right, I'm going to try a different approach and still try to do the best job I can." And Peter didn't assume that because he won that, that uh, he could just kind of coast and think that's always going to happen again, that he had to continue to earn that of the chamber uh, year after year, which he did. And so, you know, while people's memories were still, you know, acute enough to remember all these things, you know, I think it's important for history to be able to to record exactly, you know, how these things actually happened. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of other stories I'd like to know about what happened <laughs> in other things. And, you know, uh, people with the uh, first degree information on that, I'll be anxious to read myself sometime. But I think it's, it's important for people to uh, have a perspective on just how these things, you know, come down. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. And I think, you know, our audience is obviously Oregon political nerds, uh, people whose job is Oregon politics or hobby is Oregon politics. So I think this is a tremendous, there's tremendous historical value to listeners and, you know, maybe we'll hear from, I, it'll be interesting to see if Governor Brown writes her memoirs or Peter Courtney contributes to the public record in some way yeah. and, and they can kind of present their perspectives and sides of the story. But thank you for sharing with our listeners the because this wasn't just, what I appreciate is it wasn't just, oh, this is what Rick, Rick Metzger remembers. It was you kind of doing some investigative reporting with your colleagues. My final question, I know we're coming up on time here, is if you look back at the last 30 years, 40 years of Oregon politics, Kate Brown and Peter Courtney are right up there with people like John Kitzhaber in terms of their significant impact over a long period of time. Their names are on huge pieces of legislation, also political issues that weren't related to legislation, like they were at the center of a lot of it. When you think about what Kate Brown's legacy will be and Peter Courtney's legacy will be, maybe separately or together, what do you think they'll be remembered for? What do you think their greatest contributions will be to Oregon? You know, that's one thing that's really interesting, Ben, because, again, we talk about point in time. Yeah. One thing great about legacies, they change over time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I, for example, it was like back in 1951, the general 
thought of the day was Harry Truman was going to go down as the worst president in history. If you read some of the press back then and right. all that, you know, and then he became revered uh, and uh, for what he did and the stances he took and his legacy, you know, changed over time. I think uh, similarly, Rick, on that point uh, the book on my bedside right now is called his very best. And it's a book about Jimmy Carter. And it's yeah. the same concept, this idea of like, oh, Jimmy well, Carter. That's famous. another one. Yeah. He's been more beloved since he was president. <laughs> right. Because they say, oh, I wish we had somebody with that character, you know, yes, in the White exactly. House. So, exactly. So okay, with that in mind, I'd say a couple of things with Peter. Peter's sincerity in doing the work that he did. His love for the institution. I mean, that is, yeah. you know, I don't know, you know, how anybody would ever match that. He really lived and breathed the decorum of the Senate. And as I wrote, you know, I, I know it's been anguishing for him because he's felt some of that eroding. But I think he'll be remembered for that. I think he'll also be remembered, and this is more inside the political world, as one who put his members first over the lobbyists. Hmm. And I heard this from a lot of the my colleagues who I talked to about this, is that is, you know, you listen to all the information and everything else, but he wasn't swayed by the lobby. Uh, he was swayed, swayed by the argument, but he was also swayed by the convictions of his fellow colleagues in the Senate. And no one felt that, you know, it was some money broker that was deciding the policy that Peter was going to go moving on. I've never heard anybody, you know, I've heard about from a lot of people about different people, but never about Peter Courtney, like, oh, he's just doing it to chase the money from this group or that group. It's never was Peter Courtney. So yeah. I think his sincerity in addressing his job and respect for government, uh, just the government in general. And I think with Kate, you know, I think she's going to go down as a, certainly as a very powerful majority leader who was tenacious and advancing democratic principles. I mean, with the big, on this case, uh, the Democratic Party principle, number one. I think she'll get a lot better reception on the whole COVID thing as time passes on. It's divided the whole country in many, many ways. And and so I don't envy anybody and certainly not Kate for having been in that situation the last few years dealing with everything that had to deal with and having to make decisions that no matter what you decided, we're going to make a lot of people angry. Mm -hmm. um, I think history will be a lot better uh, on her in terms of how she handled COVID. On the other hand, it's really detracted from what, you know, may have been in terms of, you know, policy and other things because it was, it was so, you know, all consuming. We didn't really have a chance to really see Kate Brown, you know, with a, in a normal four-year cycle, what she may or may not have been able, you know, to deliver. So, but I think it'll be much more kinder when you see how the state actually did compared to other states in the whole COVID deal, but it was a rough ride. Yeah. Well, Rick, I just want to say thank you for spending the last hour telling this story and sharing with our listeners some of the inside baseball from really, I mean, that was a transformative moment in our state and it it set the trajectory that led us to today. So I really appreciate you sharing the story with our listeners. Um, uh, it's fun to do that and uh, look forward to your service and enjoy every minute of it. Thank you. Thank you. So last question, if folks want to, if maybe folks have a question or they want to get in touch with you, is the PacWest website the best place or how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, well, you can, they can send me an email. It's, uh, it's just Metzger, which I always have to remind people is with an S, like in the New York Mets, M-E-T-S-G-E-R. Metzger at pwlobby.com. And, you know, we'll answer your questions. You know, we have people, operators standing by uh, to take <laughs> them right now. And if you call right now, we'll actually give you two sets 
a couple extra Ginsu knives. If you call right now, he'll tell you who he thinks flipped their vote in the uh, caucus meeting. <laughs> All right, Rick. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, and uh, we'll see thanks, everyone man. next week.